Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast for the seeking, for the lost, for the doubting, for the deconstructed. Join me, just a regular guy, as we find, keep, and grow our faith in a deconstructing world. Welcome back to Reconstructed Faith Podcast. I know it's been a while. Um, I keep saying that these are going to come out on a regular basis, and then life just throws stuff at me. Um, As some of you know, I broke my kneecap back in October, and I haven't been working and have very slowly been recouping. So I'm out of money, and the podcast host was suspended for a while, and I was unable to upload new content. I do want to apologize for the delays, especially since we just started a new series. If you caught the last one, then you know we are in the midst of a series on Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Last week, we were expounding on the preface, and I hit two main topics. The first was denominationalism, why it's important and how we can embrace our differences to come together. The second was on postmodernism and how it relates to the world we live in and what we can do about it. I am so excited for this series. The last episode, if I can be honest, was tons of fun. It came together super fast, and I am looking forward to this whole series. While I don't see eye to eye with Lewis on everything, I think that is part of the fun, um, actually. I will get to present his view and then my own and really leave it up to you to decide what you believe and why, which is the whole idea anyway. That is the thing I always say. Know what you believe and why. So we left off with the idea of an objective definition of Christianity based on a set of core beliefs rather than any kind of qualitative judgment. If it's about obedience and it's about living like Christ, how much obedience? What does it mean to live like Christ? We instantly get into the realm of opinion instead of objective reality. So, we must, we absolutely must not define Christians as those who love most or those who obey this command or that, but as those who have a definite set of beliefs, because only then, when we have an objective definition, can we begin to discuss what is and is not Christian belief. So, why does any of this matter, and who cares? Who is this book for, and even more important, who is this podcast for? Look, we tend to think of apologetics and theology and all of this kind of stuff as like advanced Christianity. It's like stuff you go to school for, like 301, 401, bachelor's degree level stuff. But we have this completely flipped around. Theology simply means the study of God. It It has ology on the end, right? Just like geology is the study of geodes or rocks. And cosmology is the study of the cosmos. And biology is the study of bios or living things. 
We have anthropology, archaeology, paleontology. Anytime something has that ology on the end, it just means that it is the study of a thing. So if the point of the Christian life is to be salt and light in the world, if it's, as the Message Bible puts it, to be God's flavor and God's color in the world, we need to know God's flavor. We need to know his color. But many modern Christians on, on both sides, whether it's the more liberal, soft, Jesus just wants us to love, or it's the more the Bible says XYZ hyper-literal types, we all, all of us, really suck at being God's image. The reason is, the average Christian has no theological awareness. They have never studied God. So, really, you are blindly trying to imitate something that you have a caricature of. You are, in fact, going out into the world trying to tell the world about someone you met for lunch one time and talked about the weather in sports with. You don't know their passions, their goals. You don't know what makes them tick. And yet, you are trying to tell your friends about how awesome this person is. Look, Jesus is really awesome, okay? You've just got to trust me on this. I don't really know that much about him, but he is awesome. Or worse, you have a lot of false assumptions and you're spreading this bad information. What happens when someone reads the Bible or someone asks them a question about something they've never heard of and they have a really good argument? I'll tell you what happens. Fear, doubt, questioning, deconstruction, maybe even deconversion. Often, we discover we never really knew the real Jesus, and we don't like the real Jesus. If we had real discipleship, if we were learning at least theological basics, basic who, what, when, where, why hermeneutics, we could have a basis to study these so-called contradictions. We would have a framework for how to put together the pieces. If we were teaching apologetics to the new believer, instead of treating it like advanced level stuff, if we were in fact teaching a defense of the faith, they would have a leg to stand on. Lewis knew this, and rather than jumping right into atonement theory, the trinity, sanctification, things of that nature, he decided to first give us an apology. The first section of this book is entitled Right and Wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. So, if you are questioning, deconstructing believer, or if you are maybe a seasoned Christian who realizes there is more, or maybe you're a skeptic who is just curious why Christians believe what they believe, this is the perfect book for you. And I hope that my commentary through this podcast makes it even more helpful and more useful to you. Before we get into it, if you would like to read Mere Christianity and follow along, my Amazon affiliate link is in the description, as well as a link for a study guide and a few of my favorite Bibles. Don't forget to find us on Facebook and join the discussion group. 
I would love to hear some of your answers to the study guide if you buy it. I would love to see all of my listeners interact with each other and put some of what we are learning into practice. For a more intimate experience, click the support the show link in the show notes and join the Reconstructed Theologian membership level. And once a month, there will be a live Q&A where we can chat and you can ask me anything about anything. Let's get started. Lewis starts by asking, have you ever listened to people argue? Better yet, have you ever been in an argument? What kind of things do we say? You know, before tempers rise and we succumb to ad hominem attacks, we will only regret later, which in its own way supports the premise we are about to discuss. Why did you just do that thing you just did? Hey, that's mine. Get your own. Look, it's not a big deal. Leave him be. He's not hurting anyone. Why didn't you pay me back? Dude, ask first next time. How many times have we found ourselves in these types of disagreements? How many times are we on the receiving end? How often are we trying to justify our actions? But why do they need justification? Getting upset when it affects us or our stuff makes sense. It's just selfish survival. So why then do we need to justify our actions? What are we appealing to? Obviously, in the workplace, we're going to appeal to the rules of our employer as some kind of standard that we, in fact, broke no rules, or we can appeal to the laws of the land. But what about these interpersonal squabbles? What standard are we appealing to? And why do we basically agree on that standard? Why is the golden rule due unto others? Morality. Morality is the answer. Not only do we always appeal to some standard to prove we have in fact done no wrong, but we for the most part agree on this standard. All legal systems, all rules, whether they are the rules of a workplace or some kind of social club, online forum, what have you, are all based on similar rules. So, want these arguments and our mysterious appeal to an authoritative moral standard reveal is what Lewis calls the law of human nature. Whether it would be freely admitted or not by all men, and by that I mean mankind, not just the males of our species, do in fact recognize this law of human nature and appeal to it. Paul reveals this very thing to us in Romans chapter 2. Here is verse 14 and 15 in the English Standard Version. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is God's law as understood and received by the Jews by way of the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Um, we could even look at Romans 1, now that I think of it, um, starting at verse 28. I'll point out verse 32 when we get there. Uh, ESV. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, Paul believed all people know God's righteous decrees, that in fact, this law of human nature, as Lewis calls it, isn't human nature at all, but something that God himself has placed there. We can see this across cultures, across geographies even. Let's take a look at the oldest known written legal code. The Code of Ernama is believed to be as old as 2100 years BCE. That would put it around the time of Abraham, uh, uh, if you believe there was an Abraham at least. Let's take a look at this Code of Ernama. If a man commits a murder, that man must be killed. If a man commits a robbery, he will be killed. If a man commits a kidnapping, he is to be imprisoned and pay 15 shekels of silver. Now, a shekel was one day's wage. So let's say somewhere between 200 and 250 dollars. So a kidnapper had to pay around 3,500 dollars. If a man violates the right of another and deflowers the virgin wife of a young man, they shall kill that male. If a man proceeded by force and deflowered the virgin female slave of another man, that man must pay five shekels of silver. If a man divorces his first wife, he shall pay her one mina of silver. Now, a mina was 50 shekels, so that is in fact around $10,000. So we can see even here way back then, there was alimony. Uh, if it is a former widow whom he divorces, he shall pay her half a mina of silver. So 25 shekels being $5,000. If the man had slept with the widow without her, uh, without there having been any marriage contract, he need not pay any silver. So this one, this one's a little different. And it also makes some sense. She's a widow, no longer a virgin. There was no agreement between them. They were in fact just consenting adults, which even back then was not a crime. If a man is accused of sorcery, there is in fact no exact translation. Um, sorcery or witchcraft are the closest equivalent. He must undergo an ordeal by water. If he's proven innocent, his accuser must pay three shekels, so between $600 and $750. We have no details about this particular ordeal of water, but it is likely very much like what was practiced up through the Middle Ages to divinate who was, in fact, a witch or not. You would be thrown into the water with a rope tied around you. If you float, you're a witch, and then you're killed. If you sink, it proves you're innocent, and they hope to pull you out before you drown. If you are successfully retrieved, you were to be paid three shekels of silver for the false accusation. If a man accused the wife of a man of adultery and the river ordeal proved her innocent, then the man who had accused her must pay one-third of a mina of silver. Now, shekels and mina and all of that were weighed out, but a third of a mina is about 17 shekels or so, or 
or uh, four thousand dollars based on um, you know a daily wage. If a prospective son-in-law enters the house of his prospective father-in-law, but his father-in-law later gives his daughter to another man, the father-in-law shall return to the rejected son-in-law twofold the amount of bridal presents he had bought. He had brought if he if he shall weigh and deliver to him two shekels of silver or $500. If a slave escapes from the city limits and someone returns him, the owner shall pay two shekels to the one who returned him. I like this one. Not because I like slavery, mind you, but because it doesn't allow for ingratitude. If someone brings you back your stuff, you pay them for it. This also encourages others to return other people's belongings instead of keeping them for themselves. If a man knocks out the eye of another man, he shall weigh out half a mina of silver. How interesting that we don't see an eye for an eye here, but we in fact see a payment of $5,000. If a man has cut off another man's foot, he is to pay 10 shekels. If a man, in the course of a scuffle, smash the limb of another man with a club, he shall pay one mina of silver, $10,000. If someone severed the nose of another man with a copper knife, he must pay two-thirds of a mina of silver, around 7000 Interesting, it says copper knife. What if it was a silver knife or a bronze? This was, in fact, the Bronze Age. <laughs> See, Look at that right there. I'm proving the point. I look at the wording. I look at the wording and I instantly try and finagle my way around the rules. This, this is the crap that we all do. If a man knocks out a tooth of another man, he shall pay two shekels of silver between four and $500. If blank, we actually don't have the text here. He does not have a slave. He is to pay 10 shekels of silver. If he does not have silver, he is to give another thing that belongs to him. If a man's slave woman, comparing herself to her mistress, speaks insolently to her, insolently to her, rather, her mouth shall be scoured with one quart of salt. If a slave woman strikes someone acting with the authority of her mistress, blank, another section lost to time. If a man appeared as a witness and was shown to be a perjurer, he must pay 15 shekels of silver. If a man appears as a witness but withdraws his oath, he must make payment to the extent of the value in litigation of the case. If a man stealthily cultivates the field of another man and he raises a complaint, this is, however, to be rejected, and this man will lose his expenses." If a man flooded the field of a man with water, he shall measure out three cur of barley per aiku of field. These are measurements that we don't understand. There is, in fact, no translation or equivalent known to us. If a man had let an, an arable field to another man for cultivation, but he did not cultivate it, turning it into a wasteland, he shall measure out three cur of barley per aiku of field. This is 750 years before Moses. So we can say all we want that everyone just copied Moses, but history doesn't show us this. What history does show us, as is supported by the scripture we looked up earlier, is that there is a need for law, a desire for right and wrong built into each of us. 
we all appeal to some kind of objective standard. When we are in arguments or fights, as we discussed earlier, and we are appealing to these standards to either justify our anger or we're trying to work around these standards to create justification for our misdeed, we rarely object to the other person's standards as if to say, hey, I disagree with that rule. The fact is, when it comes to fairness and justice and the like, these are principles we would all agree on. Even if we might disagree with how those are to play out in the world around us, we agree on the principle. These are universal truths. When they are not, when there is some kind of deviation, it is due to some kind of cult, or you find it in a society that doesn't last very long. So, Lewis uses this reality to make the case for the law of nature, or what is now more commonly known as the law of human nature. Now, there are opposing ideas to where this comes from. If it is in fact evolutionary, like some would suggest, then this law of human nature is no such thing, but it is an observable standard of moral odds. We can, by way of natural observation and reason, understand which kinds of actions behoove us and which do not. It does not behoove us as a society to kill one another. While we don't always agree on rules when it comes to sexuality, how many wives a man may have if we need to be monogamous, these days, some of these things are even questions within Christianity. With porn usage and infidelity and premarital sexual activity at the same rates within the church as without out. We can, though, some would say, by observation, all agree we cannot, or at least should not, just have whomever we wish. If it was a natural, observable, moral ought, though, you think we would be better at following it. If it was, in fact, an observable fact and something we logically concluded was helpful, beneficial, and reasonable, then why aren't we doing it? This is one of the biggest reasons and is really why this law differs from others. The ability for us to seemingly ignore the natural moral law is one of the ways that it is not like other laws. The law of gravity, for instance, applies to everything and everyone. There is, in fact, no way of your own will to say, you know what, I don't believe in gravity today, and then have its mind on you suddenly released as you float away, screaming, darn you, Isaac Newton! The law of electromagnetism. An MRI machine uses large magnets to create an electromagnetic field around your body. This field causes all of the protons and the atoms of your body to align unidirectionally towards the magnetic field. This is part of the electromagnetic force that all things in the universe are controlled by, same as gravity. Then a radio frequency pulse is launched at your body at a perpendicular angle to the magnetic field causing the protons to shift, and then when it is shut off, the protons snap back into place, releasing electromagnetic energy. There are sensors in the machine that pick up this release of energy and use it to make an image. We have no control over this. Say you or I need an MRI. We have no more power to prevent this reaction than we do to prevent water from boiling at 212 degrees or 100 degrees for my Celsius friends. The law of entropy. We are, in fact, dying from the day we are born. 
There is no power within us to stop the decay of our cells. No way to stop the slow degradation of our genetic code, as we make copy after copy after copy of our cells until finally our body just ceases to function. These are the sorts of natural forces, laws, if you will, that all things are affected by. But it is those qualities that are unique to humans. This law of nature, as some call it, at least according to Lewis, that man has a choice about. Not so much a choice as to what the rules are, or choosing which things are good and which are not, but a choice as to whether or not we want to follow this law. Not only that we have the ability to twist it or use it selfishly or unjustly, we call this manipulation, this is when we use someone's sense of loyalty and honesty to hold them to something they may have said in mistake. This is sadly what we do when we say, don't you love me? Don't you like me? Why aren't you nice to me? All the while, we're being the opposite of those things ourselves. We all seem to have these double standards, don't we? The rules matter for others, but not for us. In this way, the law of human nature is much different than other so-called natural laws. So, we must admit to ourselves that right and wrong do exist. We must also be honest with ourselves that these principles are even shared. Now, obviously there are differences between this set of laws and that one, but never a complete difference. We don't, for instance, see a culture where it is good to be a liar and a thief, or where killing your neighbor for no reason other than he looked at you funny goes unpunished. No one who claims there is no such thing as right and wrong actually lives doing as they willst. They simply mean to say they don't believe in some objective supernatural standard. Everyone has morals. Everyone. Not only that we all agree on which kinds of things are good and which kinds of things are bad. This must be true or we wouldn't make excuses. This must be true or we wouldn't feel guilt or shame. This must be true because it is never your fault when you do something wrong after all. He did it. Or you were awfully tired that day, or you were hangry, or the Christian's favorite, I haven't had my coffee yet, or the devil made me do it. And yet, we all gladly take responsibility when we gladly own our conduct. We gladly take responsibility, and we gladly own our conduct when we have accomplished moral good. When we feed the poor... Picks or it didn't happen, right? We must go on and on about the good we have done because somewhere deep inside us, we are trying to make up for the bad we know we have done. So the first point is that if we have morals, if the Bible is true, we all have morals because God has written them on our heart. Natural revelation reveals to us these moral oughts. So why don't we do what is right? Why are we selfish? Why do we hurt each other? Why do we insert pets in here? Total depravity. That's right. You heard that. You know that I associate with Calvinism and Reformed theology. You are thinking, oh great, here comes the tulip. 
Calvin wasn't the first person to write about man's total depravity or total inability. St. Augustine in the 4th century wrote about man's depravity. Lutherans believe in total depravity. A bondage of the will is the way that Luther wrote about it. Obviously Calvinists and Reformed. Classical Reformed Arminianism, even Wesley and his adaptations of Arminian theology. Total depravity is in fact an Orthodox Protestant position. It's not just a Reformed thing. It has historically been agreed upon by all Christians. It isn't until more recent decades that this particular doctrine came into question. So, to understand this properly, we need to ask a series of questions. Is man basically good or evil? What is our default position? I think the answer to this will be divisive and it might even shock some of you. Romans 5:12 and 19. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay? So by Adam's disobedience, the many were made what? Sinners. Here's some Job for you from chapter 15, verses 14 through 16. What is a man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less... One who is abominable and corrupt. A man who drinks injustice like water. What is a man that he can be pure? This obviously implies that man cannot do what is right. We cannot keep the law. We cannot be pure. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And these are only a few passages. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that man's natural state is one of evil. Despite this moral law that is within each of us, as Lewis states, none of us can, in fact, do it. We cannot. Okay, well, certainly this is not true of all of us, right? Someone somewhere has to be good. There are decent people somewhere. Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Romans 11.32 For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 2 Chronicles 6.36 There is no one who does not sin. Isaiah 53.6 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Mark 10, 18, Luke 18, 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, okay, okay. So, Everyone sins. I get it. I agree with you. But like deep down in our hearts, right? Aren't we all good people deep, deep down? Here's what Jesus had to say in Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. They come from where? From within. Out of the heart of man. You know, so deep, deep down. Okay, but none of that proves total depravity. Like, we're not all murderers and stuff. Ah, but that is in fact not what total depravity means. It doesn't in fact mean that each of us is completely evil, depraved in every way, as evil as can be. In fact, God is restraining each and every one of us from being as evil as we could be. It means that each part of us is, it, that each part of us is affected by sin. There isn't a part of our being that isn't corrupted in some way. Our hearts and minds are depraved. Jeremiah 17.9 the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Titus 1.15.16 To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Matthew 15.19 for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. Our will and our choices are depraved. John eight thirty-four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Our affections and desires are depraved. Ephesians 2, 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Proverbs 21, 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. John 3.19 And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We are in fact totally depraved in every part. Titus 1.15-16 To the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Romans 7.18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Isaiah 1.5-6 The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So, God has given each of us a sense of morality, but we in fact don't do it. We can't do it. The law in fact exists for this very reason, to show us our depravity. Since we're here, and we have in fact been crushed by the law, let me offer you some hope. The good news of Christ and Him crucified. God came, incarnate as a man, and lived in accordance with not only man's moral law, but the law of God. This man was Jesus Christ, who, who, did, who then died on a cross, because the wages of sin is death, and He rose again firstborn from the dead, so that we may not only have a new life, 
but have life everlasting. When you believe this, believe that you in fact have broken God's law and believe that Jesus is obedient on your behalf and you put your faith in what he has done when you trust that Christ has paid your price, all good is counted to you as righteousness. We call this imputation. All good that Christ has done gets counted as if it was you because you can't be good. Put your faith in Christ who is good for you if you want to believe but just don't know how. Or maybe you've been a believer forever and have never heard about Christ's act of obedience before. Send me an email. Find me on Facebook. Let's talk about it. Next episode, we will make some objections to this idea of the law of human nature and discuss how Lewis deals with these objections. If you would like to read Mere Christianity, follow along with the study guide. There are affiliate links for both of those in the description, as well as the Bible I use, Luther's Bondage of the Will, and Augustine on Christian Doctrine. You can also support the show via a one-time payment on PayPal or Buy Me a Coffee, or you can join the new members area at the Buy Me a Coffee link, and you will get access to all of my notes and the script for each episode. The higher level members will get a Zoom social meeting as well. Most important is, if you are learning, if this show is helping you, if you are growing in some way, tell your friends, your family, tell an elder or pastor, maybe they'll listen. Leave reviews on Facebook, Apple, Google, wherever it is you get podcasts. Give it a thumbs up on the YouTube. Share links. Put them everywhere you can. Let's make this thing a brand. If you have ideas for a podcast of your own, click the link in the description for Buzzsprout. Sign up for the $12 option. That's what I use. It gives you three hours of upload time and gives you a free website and shares your podcast with Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify. It has very helpful stats as well as sponsorship and partner programs. When you sign up today, we both get a $25 Amazon gift card. Thank you for listening to Reconstructed Faith. Until next time.